day 182. Welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith, and this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and to see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right, man. So I'm, I'm excited this morning. Um, we're here in the thick of Isaiah. Isaiah is, man, this uh, awesome, meaty, uh, sometimes dense book. Um, that once again flows, uh, talk, talks about the past and it talks about the future. So it ebbs and flows back and forth. And here in Isaiah 25, we're coming up on a section where he's going to talk about um, the fame and fortunes of Zion. Right. So he talked about judgment in 24. Remember the last episode in 24. He goes to this worldwide judgment. God is going to judge the whole earth. But like we know in the book of Isaiah, judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. Right. Isaiah is going to show us that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. And one of the things um, that makes God's judgment good news is that, man, it proves that God keeps his promises. Right. So if you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, when Israel was about to go into the promised land, God said, yo, man, if y'all break, if y'all mess this up, y'all know I'm a judge y'all, right? And God, God judging his people was him keeping to his word, right? That was him being consistent in his character and what he says. And so 25 is picking up at the end of 24, on the end of 24, and it's going to say, yo, for you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. So he's playing off this theme of an, of an unnamed city uh, that he mentioned at the end of 24. I didn't really mention it yesterday, but this unnamed city he's talking about um, is ambiguous, and that's... <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, on purpose, right? He's trying to just say, yo, this um, unnamed city represents humanity collectively that is in rebellion against God, right? All human tyranny that exists upon the earth will be undone by God. That's all he's saying. Um, But he goes on to say that Yahweh will be a stronghold for the poor and for the needy, um, so much greater than the cities, the ungodly cities and ungodly kingdoms of the world that try to uh, live and build for themselves. So he'll say in verse six on this mountain, here's the salvation on this mountain. The Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples, a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. If you needed a passage to tell you about the goodness of wine, uh, this is definitely one. Once again, what Isaiah is saying here is that this future salvation for the people of God will involve a wedding feast, right? A wedding feast. And if you know me, this passage especially sticks out because it's talking about a wedding feast and I'm about to get married really, really, really soon. And um, it's so good because remember in Israel, the feast that they celebrated were always pointing back to a victory, right? So the Passover, right, was pointing back to the victory in Egypt, right? The Feast of Unliving Bread was pointing back to the victory in Egypt. The Feast of Booths, right? All these things were pointing back to a victory of God. So in other words, the in the end time, this wedding feast we're going to have is the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus will say, right? It celebrates the victory that Jesus wins at the cross and in his resurrection, right? And he's like, yo, this will be marked by prime cuts and wine, Right. And he's saying, yes, we're going to eat in heaven. Yes, we're going to eat in heaven, literally. 
But this is why Jesus comes on the scene in John 2. And you know what his first miracle is? So good. What is his first miracle? Water to wine. Why? Because he's trying to show that this Isaiah 25, 6 end time vision has broken into the first century. Right? This salvation that God had promised eight, 700 years ago has come to bear in the middle of history. Right? And it's through Christ. And we get to partake and have this joy and this celebration now. Jesus is like, why not get the party started early, right? That's what, that's what God is saying, right? And he says this in verse 8, so beautiful. He says, yo, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God, here it is, will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken it's so crazy that um man the apostle paul will um you know echo the beginning of this verse in first corinthians first corinthians 15 showing that the hope of the resurrection is that god has swallowed up death right so even in christ's resurrection he's going to be like yo death where's your sting right god has swallowed up death and he's connecting that text with this one and shows that yes one day absolutely our bodies will raise like jesus's but also Man, like the resurrection, because of the resurrection, we can know that our tears have an expiration date, right? Our tears are temporary, right? That we can get them all out now because when Christ comes and we and he raises us all up, man, there'll be no more crying, right? There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death. All the things that plague us now will be un done and because we know that now that gives us hope right that gives us hope that leads us not to despair right and so if you're listening to this today man meditate on isaiah 25 it's really one of the most um, important texts in isaiah one of the most rich texts in isaiah and i don't have time to go through it all but man the more we meditate on these things the more god uh brings joy and hope uh, to our hearts as we think of him chapter 26 chapter 26 comes and begins to speak about the praise right that will spring forth from the land of judah um in light of what happened in 25 and saying that yo basically we will praise god and we will be this strong city and he goes on to show what that means as he mentions the peace of god right that the people will have and here in 26 one of the things i think we tend to do is individualize the peace of god right the peace of god is not an individual entity primarily in the bible let me say that again the peace of god is not a an individual entity primarily in the bible it includes that but it's not only that right so in this context when he's talking about the peace of god technically he's talking about the absence of enemies attacking them so remember if israel disobeyed that's when the enemies would come in and attack and he's saying you guys will be in peace you will have perfect peace if your minds are fixed on him yes individually but also uh corporately right the land the people of god together will live in harmony Right. That's what he's saying from trusting Yahweh. Right. How much. And I think that applies to us today. Right. When we're all right. Um, fo focus in our um, minds and our hearts are firmly fixed on God. Man, that that breeds the peace that we're looking for within our church communities as well. And he talks about, yeah, in the future, you know, God is going to reverse the fates. Right. The poor 
uh, in this life, the arrogant and the proud trample on the poor and the needy. But in this text, he'll say, yo, the poor will trample on the proud. And this is why Jesus, man, Jesus comes, man, listen, man, listen, listen. If if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand the gospels, if you want to understand everything the God man says, you have to know the Old Testament. You have to read those because he was drenched in it, right? Luke 4, right? He's going to say that, yo, the good news is the good news to the poor, right? Just because of this, like because of texts like these, right, where God is going to reverse the fates, and we've talked about a ton, God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted, right? That's why Jesus will say that the gospel is technically good news to the poor. So the back half of, you know, chapter 26 uh, Isaiah is just going to talk about the vindication of God's people. It is God going to prove them to be righteous at the end of time. Um, and here I tip my hat to a guy like, man, John Piper, who has built a ministry <laughs> off of verses like uh, 26, 8, and 9. So he'll say, yo, yes, Lord, we wait for you in the path of your judgments. Our desire, our desire is for your name and renown. Our desire is for your name and renown. I long for you in the night. Yes, my spirit within me diligently seeks you. For when your judgments are in the land, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Uh, We are desiring creatures. We are desiring beings. Our desires and our loves ultimately tell us who we are, right? And here, Isaiah is saying one of the marks of the righteous right now today in the year of our Lord 2021 is that your chief and highest desire is for God himself. Right. That's how you can know. That's that's a way you can know if you are right with God. Right. That that your ultimate aim and highest desire is to have him. Right. And coupled with that is that the, the, you would have a desire that folks would know him, that he would be honored as he should, that he would be glorified, lifted up, and made famous, right? That should be the desire, the mark of the righteous. 27 comes, and he talks about this guy or this figure named Leviathan. So Leviathan, uh, mentioned in 27, comes from, we talked about it a little bit in Job, but he comes, it's this uh, mythological character that comes from you know Canaanite mythology and is known in this context in this time in the world as this vast sea monster and creature that represents evil and chaos right and so here in this context <clears throat> there's a contrast because before God will say yo I'm bringing judgment on physical evil and chaos and unjust natures unjust nations and sinful world systems the proud and the arrogant yada yada but here Isaiah is saying no 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 God is going to take a sword and slay what is behind all of that right forever and after that he says yo in the days to come jacob will take root israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit why does he say that we'll remember yeah genesis 1 1 and 2 right adam and eve were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and bring god's blessing to the ends of the earth he's saying yo i'm going to do that in the end time in jacob and through israel through my people through the true israelite jesus who uh helps us see that yo um man the original commission is going to be fulfilled through the great commission right it's only by christians taking the gospel right that the god that god's vineyard would grow right god's vineyard would grow and it would be fruitful and people would come to know the lord and he'll say yo therefore jacob's iniquity will be atoned for in this way 
and the result of the removal of his sin will be this when he makes all the altar stones like crushed bits of chalk no astral pose or incense altars will remain standing and all he's saying there is that man god is going to um, atone for israel's sins and he's going to uproot the idols himself himself right he's going to uproot the idols that his people tend to fall prey to himself god is going to do all the work all we have to do is have faith chapter 28 and chapter 28 um yeah it kind of starts a new section because it's uh you know transitioning in isaiah and you know if 25 to 27 is talking about the fame the fortune and the glory of zion and what's going to happen in the future 28 kind of goes back to judgment right and so um it begins the mark of where god is going to present these six woe oracles um but again as god always does he sprinkles in hope right and, you know, he talks about here the judgment of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern um, kingdom at the time, 8th century B.C., northern kingdom. Samaria is the uh, northern capital. And God is going to bring them under his wrath. He talks about this drinking of the cup and the drunkenness language, right? Um, the cup of God's wrath, and they're going to experience it. And part of the reason they experience this is because of the leadership in Israel, right? The leaders, the priests, the prophets were not leading God's nation as they ought, right? And so the, once again, Israel was not just uh, prone to political mismanagement, but they were those that were, uh, you know, um, prone to uh, spiritual dysfunction, right? And that led to political mismanagement, if that makes sense. Um, but verse 16 comes and he says this, therefore, <laughs> the Lord God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Here Yahweh is saying, man, that man, the only way to be saved from the coming onslaught in this context of Assyrian captivity is through the cornerstone. And the beauty of the Bible is that, man, God still saves in the same way, right? The people of God have always been saved in the same way by God providing the means of salvation. The stone here in this time represents the place, the temple of the promises and presence of God. On this side of the cross, I only know of one person where both of those are kept. And that's Jesus. He represents the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And in his body is the fullness of deity, Colossians 2.9, the presence of God. And today, just as much as then, we are saved, sustained, kept, and our future is fixed because of the cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, we ask that um, our hope will be in the resurrection that man we will remember that our tears are temporary that we have hope beyond this life and you have swallowed up death god i pray that we will look forward to the wedding feast of the lamb where we will have fine wine, choice meat.